Welcome to the GB News Real Me podcast. I'm Gloria DiPiero. Now, we all have views on politics and politicians, but aside from the spin and the knockabout, who are they? What makes them tick? What's their life story? And why have they chosen a life in politics? That's what the Real Me podcast is all about. We hope you enjoy a very different type of political interview. For this episode, I spoke to Rosie Duffield, the Labour MP for Canterbury. She recently came under fire for her opposition to male-bodied biological men being allowed to self-identify as female in order to access women-only spaces. When I talked to Rosie, I thought it would be a good idea to start right at the very beginning and find out a bit about the person who shaped the woman she would become. Um, my mum trained as a nurse and then got pregnant very young, so that was interrupted. She was 21 and a bit when she had me. My dad um, was working, I think, in construction and decided that he had to make money. There was a baby on the way, came to London from his little village and joined the police as a train trainee police person. You leave school at, at 16 mm-hmm. and... I know before you were in Parliament, you were a classroom assistant, a primary school classroom assistant. Did you have different jobs before that? Yeah, I mean, it's not brilliant career-wise. If you leave school at 16, I'm not recommending it to anyone. And, um, you know, I didn't enjoy school. I didn't enjoy... I'm not very good at being told what to do. I think a lot of MPs are rebellious types of people, actually, and kind of go their own way. And I just wanted to get out in the world, out into the real world, and I joined a YTS scheme. Now I guess that would be called an apprenticeship. Um, Worked at Guy's Hospital, and I kicked up a bit of a stink because I said, why aren't we in the union? I was 16, they were going, because no one's ever asked for the YTS scheme. So we got that implemented. Um, I just did various different things sort of tempted and bummed about a bit really and yeah just sort of enjoyed working and being in the grown-up world and eventually when I had children I trained again to be a teaching assistant and I loved it absolutely loved it. How old are your children? Uh, 22 and 18. Gosh, my yeah. goodness me. <laughs> and they're at uni now. One's on a gap year. Mm. Because what's extraordinary is that you look very young Thank and you. you're actually 50 <laughs> years old. Yeah really old. What did you love about being a classroom assistant? Just love children. I really miss them in Parliament. Occasionally you see the little nursery train going past and I was just... But, um, yeah, I really love children. They, they just say it like it is and they're just little sponges and just being with them every single day. And I worked in a couple of schools that weren't very affluent. Um, one of the schools I worked in in a village in my constituency, a lot of the parents were from the army barracks down the road and the dads at the time were on their tours of Afghanistan. Those children needed a lot of TLC. They used to play at being snipers, you know, at the age of four. And sometimes all they needed was just to sit down and read a story and kind of, at some part of their mind, they were stressed and really worried about their dads going away and their mums. And it was like being a mum, really, but being paid to be a mum, and that's brilliant. <laughs> so... not, not a well-paid job? No, not really, I guess. Not by... Uh, by my, my salary now, actually. What sort of wage do you get as a, as a um, classroom assistant? I got about £7 an hour, I think, £7.50 sometimes, but um, I don't really think about that. I got tax credits because of the last Labour government and it was hard, you know. Um, 
but it was what I was used to. I was comfortable. You've had some struggles in your life and you've, you've been open about them, mm. including domestic abuse. Yeah. Just tell us in your own words what you went through. Um, I went out with someone and sort of swept me off my feet. It was really, really pursued me. He was very kind of very, very keen. And every time I met him, he'd buy me presents and kind of really go over the top and insist on paying for everything. And I was, you know, struggling financially and you know, he was quite a flashy kind of person. And I really fell for it. He really made me feel like a bit of a princess. And I remember my mum saying at the time, he's a bit over the top with all these presents and he's kind of love bombing you. And I thought, oh, he's just being really, really nice. And it didn't take long for quite a nasty side of him to appear, but I was completely in denial. I didn't recognize it at all. I just kept making excuses in my head or blaming myself for something I'd done. He just got more and more controlling and lying about things. It just, it just leaves you really confused because you don't know what to believe and you, you sort of start thinking you're a bit mad. Yeah, I mean, things like I'd meet him in a local bar and if I was just a, a minute or two early and I'd already got a drink, he would go to the bar and insist on paying and getting me reimbursed and then give me the money back. So that seems lovely, but it was really controlling and really just a bit strange. And I, I was more and more uncomfortable with him, so I split up with him. The election happened, I concentrated on that snap election. And as soon as I was back in Parliament, it was, you know, it was this huge overwhelming shock for me. And I was kind of on my own and that was weird. And he got in touch and said how proud he was and um, just started saying, you know, I knew you before. I still love you. I knew who you were. I'm not after the, the glamorous life, you know, that kind of thing. And I was lonely and it did, it did work, you know, so he kind of weaved me back. Big mistake. <laughs> so. Did his behaviour, what happened to his behaviour when um, you took him back? He was extremely charming, just reassuring. And, and again, because it was this link to when you're single in a job like that and suddenly you've got this high profile, there are people who maybe have a different motive. And I was warned about that by friends in Parliament. And I didn't know who to trust. And there's this guy coming along and saying, you know, I loved you when you were a teaching assistant. I don't care about this job. It's, it's, you're just you. And he was saying all the right things, you know. And of course I fell for that. I thought, this is safe, I know this. And nothing else felt safe in my world. My whole world had just turned upside down in a great way. But it was a huge shock. And I had this familiarity. And uh, again, with all the taking me out to dinner and all the presents and all those things. And then he sort of announced that he was going to leave his job and live in London. And it was all a bit, wow, um, a bit overwhelming. But I went, OK, if you really want to do that. And, uh, and then very shortly afterwards, he sort of moved in with me and was asking me to marry him within just a couple of months. But it felt as though it was kind of a continuation of the last relationship in, that we'd had. So it didn't feel that, it, it was, I was just really confused by it all and it went so fast, but it didn't feel that fast at the time. And yeah, as soon as I'd said yes, things started to get really difficult. Mm. Don't want you to say anything that you don't feel comfortable with. That's not the point of these things. He just 
revealed a side to him that was quite frightening. And he was a very, very big man and went to the gym a lot. And I was, you know, I'm quite little. And um, put it this way, I learned not to disagree with him or to offer another opinion quite quickly um, because he would just, it would bam, out of nowhere, he would just explode. And I thought, okay, I don't know what this is. I don't know what to do with this information. So I would keep apologising and then making excuses and sort of... I learned to be quiet quite quickly and I'm not a quiet person. So um, I didn't really feel that I could say anything at all. And a stupid thing happened at Christmas. I, I bought him some books because he was interested in this particular subject and he was trying to write a book himself on it. And he was just so unpleasant. He said, well, I can buy my own books. And he just, he went into a rage about that. And it was, it was small things like that. And then they all added up and then it, it got worse and worse. And I couldn't say anything at all. I couldn't walk in the room from work without, I mean, I didn't open my mouth when I walked in. It got to that stage where I didn't even say hello because even saying hello, was, somehow even that was, I did it wrong or hadn't told him I was coming home or, I don't know, everything was wrong, everything was wrong. So I almost, I almost used to creep in the door when I got home from Parliament and, and you know, sometimes I'd just go, I'd be tired, you know, we'd been voting till the early hours because of Brexit votes and things and I would just go straight into my bedroom and the atmosphere was just absolutely horrendous. And I would just sometimes just go straight into my bedroom and just phone my mum and just to have a bit of love, just to have a bit of familiarity. It sounds really nuts, but um, these things creep up on you. You don't suddenly walk into that situation, you know. How did you get out? Um, some friends started to realise that I had changed and when he was around. So he, he would come to conference with me and come to various events that we did, labour events and things and some stuff at work. And people had realised that I was kind of different around him. And um, close friends just kept saying, I don't know if you noticed the way he spoke to you. And they would, they would sort of, and I'd be like, well, you know, he's had a hard day. Or, you know, I would make excuses. And, and then, you know, I started adding up those comments and I suppose I realised that so many people were kind of raising red flags and saying that they weren't comfortable. And um, my mum then started saying something. She was very careful and cautious and she's a counsellor and a lot of her clients, she works for a rape charity. And um, I think she knew pretty early on that this was not a situation I should be in. And I started... <laughs> I started asking her questions about relationships that I think raised a flag with her. I just kept doubting myself and my, my instincts, which I shouldn't have done. But my friends and my mum were kind of reaffirming that actually my instincts were right. And um, eventually I realised I just couldn't, I couldn't carry on being frightened in my own home anymore. It wasn't very often that I was physically afraid of him, but he made it very clear that, you know, it wouldn't take much for him to sort of 
snap me like a twig, really, you know, or to properly hurt me. And he did take control in situations where, I mean, there are laws against it. That's, that's all I'm going to say about that. Um, yeah. God, Rosie, that's... It's spine-tingling, mm. actually, listening to all that. So I've... many women go through this. You know, it's not just me. And the reason I spoke about it in Parliament was because... I, I often think about the kind of women that don't have networks and don't have anyone to notice, and I had people noticing. And I know that that was what made a difference for me. And, you know, I often think about the kind of women that wrote to me after I did that speech and wonder how they are. And, you know, I had messages from their sons and um, brothers and people who were worried about certain women, and that, that won't go away, and I'm not going to forget those people. You know, it's worrying. Thank you. Thank you for reliving trauma. I think it will help other people. But it, it is traumatic to listen to. Rosie, you have had a very tough political year. Mm. You know what I'm going to <laughs> yeah. talk about here. Yeah. And um, some people think you're transphobic. Yeah. Other people say, hang on, she's raising some legitimate concerns. Why is she being cancelled? Mm. Other people say, no, she's making us fear for our identity. Yeah. That's just two very different positions. Mm. Let's put it in your words. I'm not remotely transphobic. I can't imagine wanting to discriminate or hate a group of people just for who they are and how they want to live. It's a bit like saying, you know... I don't like drinks or I don't like trousers. You don't dismiss a group of things like that, and I never would, and I haven't. And what might, you know, some people sort of interview me and say, you've been castigated because of your views on trans rights. I don't talk about trans rights because I think it's not my place to talk about trans rights. Trans people have got some great organisations and they're very good at representing their rights and that is just as it should be. Trans rights are the same rights as everyone else. Um, but what concerns me is that there is a slight conflict in some cases between trans rights and women's rights. Women's rights are why I came to Parliament and why I'm sitting here because women are now visible in Parliament and I grew up in a very strong feminist household and what really concerns me are the rights of women to have privacy and space and the necessity to be in a women's refuge not shared with someone with a male body. I mean rape is a crime that is only committed with mainly one weapon and that is a male body and I want to protect women from having to be in the same space if it is really vital to them that they're not. And that isn't about transphobia, it's about making sure that self-ID, which is a little bit of the trans issue, is just not in conflict with women's biological rights. That's it. You know, I think we should be able to talk about that without being called transphobic. You said there's really good trans rights groups mm. and, you know, the reason why you don't speak about trans rights is because you think it's not your place to... But it's I not my lived experience, yeah. you okay. know. I don't feel that I should do that, really. Some people would say you should be an ally. I am an ally. In my, in my mind, I really am. I want to be. I have trans friends and I speak to trans people 
And yes, I'm not Jewish, and I stood up for Jewish people in the anti-Semitic row, but I also don't want to get it wrong. And I think what I know about, like the back of my hand, in my sleep with my eyes shut, is women's rights. And that's what I've tried to speak about. Yeah, of course I'm an ally, but I don't feel that I should be speaking about things that other people do speak about necessarily. I'm talking about women's rights. Do you ever wish you'd never start on this debate? Um, sometimes, but I'm the kind of person who can't really keep my mouth shut, so <laughs> that's why I'm in Parliament. And I think I just saw all this stuff and hatred towards other women who were speaking about it, and I didn't really open my mouth. I liked a man's tweet, and since I liked a man's tweet, more has been written about my opinion than I had any idea about. Um, I've very rarely spoken in my own voice about it, very rarely. Um, I'm starting to now, but for a whole year and a bit, the argument about me being a transphobe was framed by a man who tweeted and that I liked it. So there were reams written about what transphobe I was, what I thought, what I said. I hadn't said any, or thought any of those things, but that is misogyny because I hadn't opened my own female mouth on it, but I had liked a man's tweet and all kinds of people were telling the world what I thought and what I believed. I hadn't said a thing. So I think I've been forced into it, really, to kind of defend and explain my view. Do you like being a member of Parliament, Rosie? Most of the time, it's the best job in the world. I love it, you know that. And, um, yeah, I mean, you get to speak for all the people that contact you, and you cannot possibly speak for 100 and 20-something thousand people in my case, but, um, but you do your best and you get to speak up for the people who also don't write emails or don't belong to a political party and don't know how to campaign. The people that I knock on doors to in the estates are not likely to have the luxury of the time to go along to political meetings because they've got childcare and they work themselves to the bone and, you know, you also speak for those people. And that is the thing that we're here to do, you know, and I love it. I love that. Yeah. And you're basically teetotal, aren't you? No, I'm just <laughs> such a lightweight. I'm such a terrible drinker. I really am. I can't do it. It's because you're so... tiny, probably. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't know. So how do you de-stress? I mean, um, this is a terrible question. This, this is like plays Street. into the whole like culture Coronation of whatever. Street. Coronation it's Street. Coronation Street is a few. And too much chocolate. But, um, but yeah, I do drink, but just not not very Not well. like a lot of other MPs. Not very <laughs> well. Including myself when I was there included. I'm really rubbish at it. But yeah, Coronation Street is my happy place, actually. So yeah, that's really pathetic, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's been really interesting to talk to you, Rosie. Thank you. I wanted to talk to you for some time and I'm grateful to you that you've given us the time. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for listening to the GB News Real Me podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. And you can join me every Monday to Thursday from midday live on GB News for The Briefing, your hour-long dose of political analysis.